I read today about a man who, during the difficult days of World War I, he was taking his small boy for a walk, and they were going by different homes, and the boy began to notice that there were stars in some of the windows of the houses they were passing by. And he said, Daddy, why are there stars in some of those windows? And his father replied, Well, son, that comes from this terrible war. It shows that these people have given a son who has died in this war. The little fellow went on silently digesting this information, and then he looked up, and there in the evening sky, he saw a lone star shining brightly. And he turned to his father, and he said, Daddy, look, God must have given a son too. You know, in his own simple way, he really hit the heart of the truth of this passage. You see, we as human beings are in a terrible war. It is the war against evil. Every one of us, every single one of us is caught in the midst of the war against evil, the war of good and evil. We're caught in the middle of it. And I thank God that we come to a passage that testifies of the fact that God has indeed given a son and that he has paid a very high price, that his son went down and he died in the midst of this terrible war against evil, but in dying he purchased life for all of those of us that want to be delivered from evil and forgiven from our sins and given eternal life in heaven. I do pray that God will help us to listen to the words that are here in this passage as men and women that are caught in the midst of a war against good and evil and that will one day die. And the truth is, all of us tend to live as though we will not die. We're all guilty of it. We tend to live as though life is going to go on and on and on here on this earth, when in reality it's not going to. And just as certain as the day of our birth was, so will be the day of our death. Recently we had a couple of our friends come from Japan and they were here in the area, people that we go and minister to each year, and they came and one of the things that Kato, a pastor friend from over there, did when he first sat down in my office is he pulled out a magazine, it was an entire magazine, and it dealt entirely with the recent earthquake in Japan and all of the devastation. And as I began to flip through that magazine, I was absolutely shocked and amazed at how much devastation could come so suddenly to so many people and how so many people died literally without warning. And all I could think of as I looked through page after page after page of wreckage, long sections of freeway, overturned, laying on its side, people crushed underneath, all I could think of was I wonder how many of those people suddenly without warning died and went straight into eternity separated from God. And yet those that must have died that went straight into eternity joined to God because someone had shared the gospel with them and they had believed and responded to Jesus Christ and taken it seriously and they were ready when their time came. Well, we have a passage in front of us that certainly gives us the truth about how to be saved and born again and it deals with Nicodemus and how he came to Jesus by night. Last time we began to get into this passage, I'm glad we stopped where we did so we could pick it up and take another pass at it. We look at how Jesus was talking to Nicodemus here. You remember he came to him by night and possibly because of his fear of criticism from the Sanhedrin, the great pressure around him, possibly because of a desire for a private conference before committing himself to Jesus, possibly because of a desire for uninterrupted conversation and possibly because he was unable to get to him during the daytime. Possibly all of those things. I tend to think it was a bit of all those things. The most important thing, however, is that he did come. Came, yes, with a belief that was limited. 
came, yes, with a good deal of blindness to spiritual things, but the fact is he came. He came to work out what he didn't understand. He came to inquire further of this Jesus who had attracted his attention, this magnetism that was coming toward him and drawing him. He came to discover further what he could from Christ. You see, if you will come to Christ on your own, bring your questions to him, he will answer them. If you will be open and honest before Jesus Christ as Nicodemus was, you will find that he may shock you as he shocked Nicodemus. But you will find also that he will minister to you. And if you will be open to him, you will find that your heart will be warmed with the love of God and the Spirit of God. And if you're really honest about who you are and about your sin and your need to do something about it, you will become convinced that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the life, and that he has loved you enough to die for you and pay the price for your sin so you could find forgiveness in him and eternal life in heaven forever. Take it up with Jesus. Ask Jesus to make all of his teaching real to you, and he will. And so came Nicodemus in belief that was limited and blindness that was real. And as Jesus began to respond to Nicodemus, we came as we ran out of time to this whole thing of his bewilderment. He was bewildered by some of the things that Jesus said to him. And that brings us up to John 3, 7. And here Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. And that's the reason he is in the state that he is in. There are people around Nicodemus that are already born again. They're already on their way to heaven. They've already come to see Christ for who he is. Here's a man that's still not fully enlightened, and it's because he hasn't fully received the witness Jesus has already been giving. And yet he is coming to press in further. Verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here is a wonderful personal witness from the lips of Jesus Christ to an inquiring, seeking man. And God, by his grace, has preserved it for all of us to be able to read it today and get in on this great presentation of the gospel and the way to eternal life. So as Nicodemus is now standing here in his bewilderment, Jesus is giving him a mandate to be born again. He says, do not marvel that I said you must be born again. We finished up last time talking about the fact that there are many who do marvel at this. There are so many that want to claim that you don't have to be born again to go to heaven. As I said, that there are two kinds of Christians, remember? There are the rest of us and then there are those born-againers. Well, the Bible knows nothing of that kind of thinking. The only kind of Christianity in the Bible in the New Testament is born-again Christianity. The only kind of people you're going to find in heaven are going to be born-again people. And so the Bible speaks so much to this issue. 
You say, but does it really speak that much? Isn't this sort of an isolated thing here with Nicodemus and Jesus? No, it is not, and you need to see that. You find the expressions born again, born of God, born of the Spirit, repeated in many places. And they all speak of the same thing. John, in this passage alone right here, mentions it five times. And then if you go on and look around in his writings, you'll find even in the beginning here of the Gospel of John. Just turn to chapter 1 to verse 13. John doesn't even go 13 verses without mentioning this. He says, who were born, John 1, 13, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, speaking of an entirely different kind of birth than physical birth, born of God. This is a necessity. John, gifted and called by God to write so many amazing things in the Bible. He writes the Gospel of John. He writes his epistles. Don't forget, he's the one who penned the Revelation. He speaks of this new birth so often. I'd like you to see, if you could, in his first epistle, where he writes of this. Could you turn to 1 John to chapter 2 to verse 29? 1 John chapter 2 to verse 29. I want you to see these scriptures in case you have been one of those who thinks you're going to get into heaven without being born again, or if you're someone who deals with people like that, you can take them in the Bible and show them what the Bible says. Then they can stand and reject the Word of God or accept it. It's important to know where these things are. And so in 1 John 2.29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. There it is again. Now just flip over to the right to chapter 4 to verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another... For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. There is this birth that takes place within you. It comes from God. It must take place, or you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Go to 1 John 5. Turn again a little farther over to the right to 1 John 5 to verse 1. And here John writes, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So there you see both the necessity as well as the simplicity of this matter. Peter writes about it. I'll read it to you. In 1 Peter 1.23, he says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And then you find different terminology that relates to exactly the same thing. For example, Peter goes on in chapter 2 and verse 9 of his first epistle, and he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That is just another way of talking about being born of God, born again. In Acts, when Peter was preaching, he stood up and he began to deliver the word of God, and he said, Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out by God, and times of refreshing will come from the presence of God as God comes to dwell inside of you. Repent and be converted. Same thing. Paul the Apostle had some marvelous ways of expressing this new birth. He called it being alive from the dead in Romans 6.13. He calls it being quickened in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. He calls it putting off the old man and putting on the new in Colossians 3 and verses 9 and 10. He calls it the washing of regeneration in Titus 3, 5. All speaking to the same thing, this marvelous quickening by the life of God inside of your very soul. And so in John 3, 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Do not marvel 
that I say to you, you must be born again. This is what salvation is all about. It is nothing to be surprised at. It is something all men must experience. So go back to John, to chapter 3. Jesus has given the mandate to be born again. Now he begins to talk to Nicodemus about the fact that the Spirit gives the power to be born again. You must be born again. And it is the Spirit of God who gives the power to be born again. It isn't something you can do on your own. You cannot work your way into the born-again experience. You cannot read the Bible so much that you will eventually, by osmosis, just become born again. Or for that matter, even pray so much that you would get so close to God just by your verbiage that you would suddenly pass from a state of not being born again into a state of being born again. You cannot do so many church duties that you would build a ladder to the threshold of heaven that finally God would say, you've done so many great things, I'm going to overturn my process and let you in. But you see, this is the way human beings think. We are the master rationalizers of all the existent beings on the earth. And we also tend to rationalize and think when we're on the fringe of being truly born again, truly saved by God, that God will somehow bend the rules. There will be no rules bent. There will be no exceptions. There will only be born-again Christians in heaven. And all the other religious people will be shut out. And Jesus gave so much teaching on this. Do not marvel, he says, that you must be born again. And it must be by the power of the Spirit of God. It must be done to you. You cannot do it for yourself. And you must come to God to receive it. Now, he is standing here talking to Nicodemus. Quite an impressive fellow. Educated. Probably dressed nice. Wealthy. Powerful. Influential. And he wants him to be saved. The uppermost thing on the mind of Jesus is this man needs to be saved. His sins need to be forgiven or he's not going to go to heaven. And so as he's talking to Nicodemus, he's scanning his spirit, as it were, with his omniscience. He's looking into his eyes. He hears, of course, his words, but he has a tendency to keep cutting him off and really going toward Nicodemus' heart. And so he gives him this analogy. Why? The analogy of the wind. Because he's not getting it, that's why. All that he's given him so far, and he's still marveling, he's still troubled. He is not at the point yet in the conversation where he's saying, that's enough for me. I came to you by night, I was afraid of peer pressure, I had my doubts, I was a little blind of this and that, but you have convinced me. No, he's not convinced yet. So Jesus gives him an analogy to take him from the known to the unknown. It's the analogy of the wind. In verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now think about this. It's nighttime. Probably as they were talking, it was calm, and suddenly a gust of wind comes out of nowhere. And as the gust of wind comes by, Jesus senses it. You can hear it. And Jesus, loving to seize the moment and use anything nearby, whether it be a man going by throwing seed or whatever, he takes the analogy of the wind. And he says, you notice the wind blows wherever it wants. It just comes, it goes any direction it wants. You can hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now think about the wind. The wind has direction. For many years in my life, I was a surfer, and the direction of the wind was very important to me. I can remember growing up, 12 years old was the first time I ever went surfing, and from that moment on, the wind became important to me. Even to this day, Jesus says you can tell that it comes and it goes. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know exactly where it's going to end up. But as it goes by, you see the trees bend. You can hear it. It has a power. But it's sort of mysterious. 
You don't know its point of origin. You don't know its ultimate destination. But you can tell that it has a power. And so though you cannot see the wind, you believe in it, right? He's saying, look, Nicodemus, we're talking about spiritual things. We're talking now about the work of the Spirit of God. It's like the wind. You cannot see the Spirit of God, but that doesn't mean that He is not there. You do not know His point of origin as He comes to work in a man's life. You do not know where He's going to take that man ultimately into eternity. But you can see His work in a man's life. It's as if to say, look around, look at my disciples, these men over here by the campfire. You know, Nicodemus, there's something different about them. You know there's something different. You can see it at work. So he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Nicodemus is caught in that. Jesus is trying to get him closer to understanding how this all works. And I'll tell you, you begin to look at the Bible, and you begin to look at the lives that have been changed by God, and you realize what Paul was talking about when he said in Ephesians 2.1, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Do you understand how powerful that is? Paul puts it in terms of a quickening. The Spirit of God, we don't know the point of origin exactly, we can't see it. But suddenly here's a man who's dead. He has had no joy, he's had no love, he's had no peace. He knows nothing of the love of God. And suddenly this man is obsessed with the Bible. Suddenly this man is aglow with a newfound life. This is a man who's been quickened. Paul says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You're born again by the work of the Spirit of God, and it is the most powerful thing you will ever experience in all of your life. Oh, you can't see where the power came from. You don't know what he's ultimately going to do with you, but you know of a certainty that you have experienced now his power. You know he's living in you. And it's as different as night is from day. And this is the work of the Spirit of God. And you can look it around. You can see people next to you have had this same power at work within them. When you're personally born again, it is evident to you and to the people around you. You say, well, how do you know? Because it's the most real thing there is in your whole existence. Different things have come and gone. Philosophies, even religions. But it was never like this. I remember having searched through so many religions, so frustrated, so sick and tired of these dead doctrines and philosophies that led nowhere. My world religion teacher in college would come into class with these dark glasses on, so dark that you couldn't see anything behind them. That wasn't so bad as the fact that he left them on while he taught. He would pace around with these dark glasses on in class, and he was an existentialist. Thought he was the master of his own destiny. I'm the master of my own destiny. I am the king of my religion. He was the deadest, most unhappy, joyless individual I've ever met in my life. And I'm thinking, this guy is pointing the way to us? And it was during that class I got born again. Because Christians were coming to me, and they were so different. And I thought, if this man is such an expert in all of these things, and he's such a dead individual, and these Christians are so simple, they're down to earth, and they have light in their eyes, and they're happy, and they're telling me Jesus is the way. It just won me over. It was so winsome, so wonderful. And so God comes into your life, and He changes you. And you're tired of seeing that the other things don't work, and when that day comes, it is a glorious day. So what does it mean to be born again? It means to have a complete change of heart and character which is produced inside of you by the Holy Spirit when you repent and believe on Christ and become a true Christian. Listen very closely. This is how it works. The life the Spirit imparts to an individual is the life of God. 
That's the life that comes to you. Please understand this. When God reached down in the days of creation and scooped up a handful of mud and breathed his breath of life into that clay and made man, man was designed from the very beginning to be inhabited by the Spirit of God. When man sinned, the Spirit went out. But you see, God has made a way through the new birth by believing in His Son, if we will open our hearts to the truth about His Son, that our sin can be forgiven, that our sin can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we come and place our trust in Him, the Spirit comes back to inhabit the human spirit once again. And the life of God comes into the human soul. There's a man by the name of Henry Scugel, a great Scotsman who lived, wrote a book over 300 years ago. It's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. You see, in the end, Christianity isn't going to church, sitting in a chair. That's not Christianity. That's a part of it. But the heart of Christianity is the life of God and the soul of a man. It isn't just religion. It's a relationship with God, deep within. It's the Spirit of God inhabiting a man. And so Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And he uses the analogy of the wind. And then he goes on in his concern for Nicodemus. He gives him a little shock. He gives him a rebuke. I love to watch the master teacher at work. He's teaching with an analogy. Now he's teaching with a rebuke. And so Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? It's almost like, how far do we have to go in this conversation, Nicodemus? How can these things be? What else do you need to know, Nicodemus? And so Jesus, rather than just responding to that question, he rebukes him. First he rebukes him, then he instructs him. By the way, this is Nicodemus' last question. I'm convinced that this last question reveals how deep spiritual ignorance can be, even in a man who is intensely educated in religious things. Don't ever assume that just because some man has gone to seminary, don't ever assume that he understands the work of the Spirit in salvation. I think today in the United States of America that perhaps we might even tend to assume the opposite, because there are so many dead men in pulpits that are creating dead men in the pews. And they have a knowledge of religious things, but they don't understand the work of the Spirit. Here is a man who is intensely religious, and he has no concept of the work of the Spirit in the most basic things of salvation. Here is a master in Israel completely blind to the basic work of the Spirit in salvation. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you, notice, the teacher? The New King James says, The teacher of Israel. That is exactly what the Greek says. It says, the teacher. Now that implies either that he is the main teacher, or he is one of the main teachers. Jesus is here speaking to a man who is of incredible influence in Israel. Not only that, he's well known as one of the teachers. So get the picture. If ever there was a time the Son of God needed to appear on earth, it was now. Because here is a man who is one of the teachers in Israel. He's completely blind to the basics of the Spirit of God working in salvation. Can you imagine if that's his darkness, what was the state of the people in Israel that sat under his teaching? And Nicodemus as offspring that continued on to this day. There are churches you can go to where the pulpits are filled by men who have utterly no conception of the things of the Spirit. They live their life from one program to the next. 
They're always perusing magazines, reading church growth books to find another program. When one program brings a few people, they keep working it. If it starts to be ineffective, they dump it. They find another program. Whatever happened to the work of the Spirit of God? You see, God wants men, don't miss this, God wants men teaching His people and women teaching His people that are Spirit-taught individuals. You should make a commitment in your life that throughout your Christian walk, whether you live here, move to another place, and go to another place after that, or whatever, that you will be taught by Spirit-taught individuals. People that understand the way of the Spirit, and then make it evident in their ministry. And the truth is, if they do understand the way of the Spirit, it will be evident. It will be crystal clear. On the other hand, if they don't understand the way of the Spirit, that too will be crystal clear. And you can see it very quickly by one program after the next coming at you. And very little Bible sandwiched between the cracks and all of the work that is going on. You look into Matthew 15, 14. I'll just touch on it, read it to you. Jesus made the comment about the leaders. He said, they are the blind leaders of the blind. Just get the picture in your mind. The blind leading the blind. And he says, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. So we understand here that a high religious office with lots of education is no proof that a man has been spirit taught. Jesus says, are you the teacher in Israel and you do not know these things? Now in case you were wondering last time as to whether or not the thing about the water and the spirit really didn't after all relate to the water of the mother's womb when I told you that that's not the word in the Greek, it's not the word used for the water of the womb. In case you were doubting and still wondering after we went through that whole thing on the water, nothing could be clearer than to understand right here that Jesus' teaching on the new birth is based on the teaching of the Old Testament. When he says to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher in Israel? You teach the Old Testament scriptures and you don't know these things. What is the matter with you? What have you been teaching? Pointing away to a place you know nothing about? Where are you coming from, Nicodemus? You see, here is the proof that Jesus' teaching on the new birth comes from the Old Testament. Just to refresh your memory, look again at John 3, 5. Jesus answered and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now what would that mean to a man like Nicodemus? His mind would begin to roll. He would begin to search through his mind. Where in the scriptures have I studied? Where have I taught water, spirit, water, spirit? Where is that? What is it? What's he talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. Ezekiel 36, 25. Could you turn there in your Bible? This is a wonderful thing. I love it when Jesus is reaching back to the Old Testament scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He knows it all. Ezekiel 36.25 says, Then I will sprinkle, what? Clean water on you, and you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And I will give you, here it is, a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And then cause you, lift you up, bear you along, enable you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Why? Because God will bring his life to the soul of the one who believes on him. Are you a master? Are you the teacher in Israel? You don't know these things? Nicodemus, don't you remember Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27? Surely you do. What have you taught about that, Nicodemus? Nicodemus, 
you don't understand the way of the Spirit. And so Jesus rebukes him. And then he goes on to effectively say, you don't teach with authority because you don't understand the way of the Spirit. I teach with authority because I do. Look at verse 11. He says in John 3.11, go back there. He says, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus and he says, we know that you are a teacher. Remember that? We know. We don't know who these we are, but he comes saying we. It's almost like Jesus backs up and says, okay, we know that you are a teacher. Well, we know what we speak and what we believe. You don't know what you're teaching. You're calling me a teacher. I teach about things I understand. He says, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, what is he talking about? Let me read to you what D.A. Carson says on this in his commentary. He says, but it is earthly in that it takes place here on earth when people are born again. He says, more important, Jesus' teaching on the new birth is elementary. If Nicodemus had apocalyptic leanings, wanting to know about last day's events, then he would have wanted to know what the new heavens and the new earth would be like, from Isaiah 65. What the kingdom of God would be like when it finally dawned, Jesus says in effect, that entrance into the kingdom depends absolutely on new birth. If Nicodemus stumbles over this elementary point of entry, then what is the use of going on to explain more of the details of life in the kingdom? The heavenly things are then the splendors of the consummated kingdom and what it means to live under such glorious, ineffable rule. In other words, Nicodemus, if you can't understand the basics of becoming born again while you live in this life on this earth, the very basic things of salvation, how can you believe if I go on to share the even greater things, the more glorious things of the kingdom of God in eternity? Nicodemus, you must understand the very beginning, or you can never go on to receive more from me about heaven and the life to come. And then in verse 13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Very strange statement, isn't it? The NIV changes it and robs Jesus of what he is saying in the process. Jesus here is responding to something that was going on in that time. Some of the rabbis were going around saying that some men had ascended up into heaven and received revelation from God and were able to teach in this inspired way from this revelation that God had given. No one, Jesus said, has ever gone up into heaven. None of your teachers have the wisdom from heaven. They've never been there. You say, well, Elijah was caught up in a chariot, went into heaven. No, he didn't. He went to Abraham's bosom, where all righteous people went when they died before Jesus' death on the cross, when he led captivity captive, and then took those people into heaven. So he says, no one's ever ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. What is that? He's in heaven? He's standing here talking to me. How can you be in heaven? You're standing here talking to me. This is a statement about his omnipresence. He is, yes, in the body. But do you think the body of a man could contain the omnipresent second person of the Trinity of God? You see, he was in heaven as well as on earth in the body of a man, and that is the mystery of the God-man. 100% man, 100% God at the same time. How can that be? We don't understand. It's just true. And so he says, but all of that is simply to say this. It's a lofty way of saying this. Nicodemus, don't think for a moment, we're having this discussion, don't think for a moment that I am a teacher like you because I'm not. 
You teach things you don't even understand. You don't understand the basics of the Old Testament teaching of how to be saved, the work of the Spirit of God. I'm not a teacher like you, Nicodemus, and I'm not a teacher like your friends. I understand everything I'm saying to you. I know what the Spirit is all about. Heaven is my very place of existence. I come from there. I dwell there. I know what I'm talking about, and you need to listen to me. You must be born again. It must be by the Spirit. You cannot earn it. It must come to you as a gift from God. And no more questions from Nicodemus, by the way, after this. So it was, we read in Matthew, that when Jesus ended his sayings, the people were astonished. That's why. In Matthew 7.29, it says, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So here in his witness to Nicodemus, Jesus has laid out the way of salvation for all men. He gives a mandate to be born again. He shows how that we are born again by the power of the Spirit. And then he basically says to Nicodemus as he goes on that the cross gives the possibility to be born again. And he starts off here now with another analogy of the bronze serpent. And he draws Nicodemus' mind back to Numbers 21. Art thou the teacher in Israel? Let's go back to another passage, Nicodemus, you would know. Nicodemus. Moses lifted up the serpent, John 3.14, in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you understand that, Nicodemus? See, back in Numbers 21, the children of Israel were in sin and God was judging them. So these snakes came along and were biting them and killing them. God in His mercy designed a way for Moses to bring deliverance to the people if they'd be repentant. So he made this little stake thing and a little pole, and he made it out of bronze, and he put a, the image of a snake up there. And if you would then be repentant and look up to the image of the snake on the pole, then you would live and not die, and God's judgment would pass over you. You would be immediately saved from impending death that was judgment from God on sin. That's the picture. So Jesus takes Nicodemus back to that picture. The people looking up to the image on the pole and being saved from their impending doom. And he effectively says, this is exactly what's going to happen with me on my cross and my death. And so he speaks of being lifted up. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now he's drawing on Nicodemus' understanding, going further with him, understanding, passing over judgment, sin, death, a way out. And the way out, Jesus effectively says to him, is the cross. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here's the second must. First must, what is it? You must be born again. Second must, I must be lifted up. If you're to be born again, I must die for your sin. doesn't say it explicitly here, but that is what he's talking about. All men must look to Jesus on the cross then to be born again. All men. A.W. Tozer put it so well years ago, he said, The cross stands high above the opinions of men, and to that cross all opinions must come at last for judgment. Think of that. It doesn't matter what your opinions are today. You might say, well, I don't believe this stuff. I'll find my own way. I'll, I'll work out my own salvation. Yes, that is your opinion. And your opinion will in the end be judged by what happened at the cross. Either you bring your opinions today in this life, in light of this teaching, to the cross, and let the Son of God there dying for your sins bring light on your opinions, or you wait, you put it off, until you stand alone. 
naked and quaking before the Son of God as judge to be tried by the fire of his eyes and then your opinions will be brought to the cross. Either you bring them willingly now and let Jesus shed light on your opinions or you will be forced to bring them to the eternal judge in that day with no time to backpedal and your opinions will be permanently altered but permanently too late. You see, God in His goodness has made a way now. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, spiritual death. The Bible says every man's cause is right in his own eyes, but only the way of the cross is the way to eternal life. And that is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Verse 15, whoever believes in Him then should not perish but have eternal life. All opinions must be brought at last to the cross for judgment. And in the cross, if you will bring your opinions now, you will find the key to paradise. I love it. Cross is the key to paradise. Cross is the only ladder you can say that stretches from earth to the threshold of heaven. Cross is the only way in. And then he comes to the love of God that is behind the cross. And the first thing he says here is that it will deliver you from perishing. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is this perish? Should not perish. What does that mean? To go out of existence? No. Every man, every woman lives forever. The question is, what is the destiny? Where is the place? The perishing is something that goes on and on. It is an eternal perishing. Jesus spoke of hell in Luke 12, 5. He spoke of the danger of hell fire in Matthew 5:22. He spoke of cutting off hand or foot or casting out an eye rather than going to hell in Mark 9:43 through 47. Jesus on that last occasion added it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus spoke of evil doers being cast into outer darkness where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Elsewhere we read of sinners for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved in Jude 13, or how they may be lost, 2 Corinthians 4, or lose their souls, Mark 8, and how the fate of the wicked is death, Romans 6. This perishing is all over the Bible. We read of the death of the wicked. You look at these things and you realize a place of darkness, a place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, a place where there is gnashing of teeth, a place that is dark and yet has fire. And you realize, I cannot comprehend such a place. No, you can't. You read of these horrors of such a place. And you realize, this is what perishing is all about. And if it wasn't bad enough that that place is like that. If you do not come to receive the love of God and Jesus Christ in this life, you will go to that place. You will stay in that place forever. And you will go unchanged from what you are now. If there was no blackness, no fire, no gnashing of teeth, no worm that dies not, and you went there to be shut out from God forever, unchanged as you are now, that would be hell enough. Because you see the perversion of the human heart, deceitful and wicked in all of its ways, left alone to gnaw at you, the conscience of sins committed during a lifetime, shut out from God to change anything about you, left alone to deal with your memories, left alone to remember tearing up the track in someone's face and throwing it, left alone to remember walking out of the sermon waving your hand at the building going, ah, just another hellfire damnation preacher. 
And if you do not receive Christ, you will be left forever without Him and you will be the chief of fools because He's made it so wonderfully easy. And the Spirit of God strives with a man and with a woman so that none would be lost because the Lord does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but precious in His sight are the death of His saints. And when one dies and takes their last breath that has believed on Christ, Jesus said, I will come for you. He's ready and he's aware when each one of his saints, each one of his children, strangers in this land, are ready to depart and he receives them with open arms into heaven. It's one or the other. It's heaven or hell. And God in his love does not call upon you to understand hell. He calls upon you to escape it. Be very clear about that. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, it will deliver you from perishing this love of God that gave his only begotten son. It will also bring you eternal life. What is that? Verse 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. First of all, it's a quality of life. It's what I said to you a little while ago. It's the life of God in your soul. Nothing beyond that. It's a quality of life. It's Jesus' life in you. It's Jesus' life in your life. It's the kind of life we see him living in the Gospels. Same loving, joyful individual, peaceful individual, caring individual. You become like that. Changes everything. Immediately upon being born again, all relationships should begin to change in your life. And if they only get worse over the long haul, that is a radical index to where your heart is really at with God. You make your excuses, you make your rationales to the people around you. Look, if the life of God is in your soul, then your relationships should be Christ-like and godly without a pile of excuses reaching up toward heaven that are nothing more than a stench in the nostrils of God. Because Jesus changes everything. Not overnight, but everything is influenced by His love. It is a quality of life now. And then a quantity of life, and that is to say this. The life of God comes into your soul and you begin to taste the first fruits of heaven. First fruits. The life you begin to live now, you're going to live forever. And it's only going to get better. You taste of the first fruits now. Years ago, I worked in an orchard. Some of you know that, a 55-acre orchard in Oregon. And my responsibility at one point in time was the peach harvest. Having spent the entire winter in the rain and been on the top of a ladder trimming peach trees, every single tree, every piece of dead wood on every tree through the entire orchard. Having gone through there and having a scar on my finger to prove it, from when I almost cut my finger off one day pruning off a piece of dead wood, by the time the harvest came, we were so curious to see how the peaches were going to taste after all that hard work. Mixture of the weather, mixture of the hard work, mixture of the sunshine, the climate, all of these things, the fertilizer. And I remember when the very first peaches came, the first fruits, and we watched that one get ripe on the tree until it nearly dropped off. And just a nudge, bing, fell into our hands. We cut it open, took a bite, and it tasted like peach candy. Oh, you've never tasted a peach like that. You never will unless you go to an orchard and get the first fruits because they pick them green and send them to the market and they ripen and they appear to be ripe to you, but they're nothing like a first fruit peach right off the tree. You see, God has been so good. He's designed a salvation where we begin to experience eternal life now 
And it's going to go on forever so that the best moments, think of the best moments you've had, where you're filled overflowing, the glow of God in your soul, the peace of God, the warmth of His love, liquid love, fanning wings from heaven. We reach for phrases to describe it. That's only the first fruit. And it's going to go on forever, unhindered. That's eternal life. And it's for whoever believes, Jesus says, and that means whoever It is a whoever because it is a love for the whole world. This is the love of God. Selfless, costly, the love of redemption. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that means you. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter how long you've rejected God, Jesus invites you today to come to know Him. Just admit you're a sinner. Ask Him to come and live within you. God, bring your life into my soul. Confess your faith in the cross of Jesus Christ that he died for you. And you will be born again. He will come to you. What is this believes? It says whoever believes. What is that? This believe is, is it's a thing that's found. The verb to believe is found 98 times in the Gospel of John. 98 times. It speaks of trust. It's trusting and it's clinging to. It's relying upon. It is a trust in Christ to save you. How many here work with a computer? I have on my computer, as I speak, going across the screen on the screensaver, these words. Speaks of the trust in Christ that saves a man. I think of them often. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Upon a God I cannot see. I trust my whole eternity. And Jesus is the reason why. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but will be given eternal life. You trust Him. You place your entire eternity on Him, and He will save you. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you been born again? If you believe, have you actively embraced Him? Otherwise, you haven't believed. Evangelist Paul Rader had often urged a banker in New York State to receive Christ, but the man would not make a decision. One day, the preacher sensed that God wanted him to go immediately and speak to him again. So he took a train to the town where the man worked. He hurried to the bank and he found his friend standing right in the doorway as he walked up. Raider, he said, I'm glad to see you. I wrote a telegram begging you to come and see me, but then I changed my mind and I threw it away and I didn't send it. That's all right, said the evangelist. Your message came through anyhow by way of heaven. I'm here. Under deep conviction of sin, the banker was impressed by Raider's earnestness and his special effort to reach him with the gospel. And within a few minutes, he had accepted the Lord. In his newfound joy, he exclaimed, Raider, did you ever see the sky so blue or the grass so green? Hallelujah, you're truly converted, came Raider's response. It's just like the song says, Heaven above a softer blue, earth around a sweeter green. Something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. You're born again. Suddenly the banker gave a strange gasp and fell over dead. He had been saved on the brink of eternity. Whoever will believe... Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever sin you've committed, the blood of Christ will cleanse you. Jesus Christ will forgive you. He will receive you if you will place your trust in Him today. We live in an uncertain world. We live in a war of good and evil. 
And every one of us, saved or not, will one day fall and go down in the battle and breathe their last. When you breathe your last, are you going to heaven? Are your sins forgiven? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the work of His Spirit? Have you embraced His love? If you haven't, do so today. Do so today. Today is the day of salvation. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your saving grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that there's a way out, that there's a new beginning in Jesus. We pray that you would work your great work of salvation in every heart that has heard this message today. We commit each soul into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.